All right, so everybody looked at the notes and thought, uh-oh, we've accidentally got the note from last time. But if you look close, you'll see that's not the case. And so just to bring us to where we are, where we are studying eschatology, which is a fancy way to say the study of future things. We want to remember that God knows everything about the future, that nothing that we're talking about is confusing to Him. It's confusing to us because of our human limitations, our, our weak little minds, but it's not confusing to Him. He's got it figured out. And in Scripture, He's revealed to us the major points. And about these events occurring, we have absolute confidence because God is never wrong and never lies. So we divided eschatology between personal eschatology, what happens to me when I die, uh, what happens to me as the future unfolds. We talked about, uh, again, what happens after we die. We talked about the, the indestructibility of the human soul, that every human who's ever been born is created imago dea in the image of God, and each human has a soul, and that soul is indestructible. It will exist through all upcoming eternity, which is why we don't say that a soul is eternal, because it has a beginning. And then general eschatology, which breaks up the future events of humanity. And so as we started breaking down general eschatology, we, we defined three major positions. Premillennialism, which we said was the position that most of us has been, have been exposed to in Baptist circles and in evangelical circles, which, which says that Jesus will physically return to the earth before the millennium, which is why it's called pre-millennialism, and then a literal thousand-year golden age of peace, of harmony, of, uh, of Jesus ruling over the nations will occur. And... It is a literal interpretation of Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Amillennialism rejects the belief that Jesus will have a literal thousand-year physical reign on the earth. The amillennial view is that the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 is a symbolic idea that the church age is the millennium and that... We are in the millennium, if you will, now. And that Jesus' return will um, be a time, the time of judgment. Postmillennialism, different than amillennialism, is an interpretation of 20, chapter 20 uh, in the book of Revelations, which sees Jesus' second coming occurring after the millennium. And, a, and uh, the millennium is a golden age in which Christian ethics will prosper. The difference between the two is amillennialism teaches that we are going to, the, the gospel will sweep over the earth and that everything's going to be, get better and better and better and better. And we stated, as we talked about this, that amillennialism really, there aren't many people who call themselves amillennialists today um, because World War I and World War II proved that human beings, when left to themselves, don't progressively get better. That the second law of thermodynamics applies to humanity as well. That things degrade over time. So if you notice that all three of those positions, the primary place where they diverge is in their interpretation of Revelation 20. 
So I want us to spend our time today looking at that book. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or use your electronic devices or use the notes that I've given you, uh, I printed it out in, in the ESV version. We're going to break down Revelation 20. I hope to get through that t- tonight. I don't know that we will, but we're going to try to. That's, that's our goal. And as we go through and look at each section, we're going to look at how an amillennialist, a premillennialist, and a postmillennialist will address that. I did have someone uh, who asked me uh, about preterism, which is a uh, way of amillennial kind of position. A preterist believes that all the prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled. And then there are people who are partial preterist, which believes that all of the prophecy in the Bible up to the second coming has been fulfilled. And so that's just a fancy way to say uh, that the, they take Matthew 24 and this would say that that occurred uh, during Titan's destruction of Jerusalem. That that's not, there's no future events in that. And I think we kind of address that in, in a, a uh, I will say that pre, post, and amillennialism are all orthodox views. They're all held by people who would agree with you and I that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. That those are orthodox views. Some preterists veer away from orthodoxy. What has generally been accepted as being orthodox beliefs over the last 2,000 years. Not all. In fact, usually today, people would refer to themselves as a partial preterist. There have been people, though, that have believed in preterism to one level or the other as far back as 180 A.D. The doctrine really wasn't defined, though, fully until the 17th century. So, let's look at Revelation 20. And we'll take that, the first little section. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, so amillennialism, those that hold that there's a non-literal view, think that this thousand years is the same period as the present church age, and there will be no future millennium before Christ returns for final judgment. So they believe that the thousand years are symbolic, and that they, they, they look at this vision in terms of understanding other biblical texts. And so they would read this just like in uh, Revelation 13. That remember, every year at Christmas, I always talk about my favorite nativity scene from Revelation 13 with the red dragon. Um, and that's heaven's view of the, that. They're saying that this is a taking all of hu- human history and looking at it from that heavenly view. And that it's not referring to a literal thousand years, but it's referring to a, an epoch, a time period. The postmillennialist would take that and say that 
they, since they believe that Christ will return after the millennium, they think that before he returns, the gospel will spread and triumph so powerfully that societies will be transformed and peace and justice will reign on earth for a thousand years, after which Christ will return for the final judgment. And I mixed up earlier, and I'm sorry. I mixed up amillennialism and postmillennialism. I'm sorry. Um, it's the amillennialist view that, that, I'm sorry, the postmillennialist view that it would be no longer held today. I just realized as I was reading that that I mixed it up. So in Revelation 12, let's, let me flip over to Revelation 12, which is the, the text that I'm referring to with the... Let's see here. Revelation 12, um, 9 through 17. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serf, servant who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of his brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe unto earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So, in verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Remember the whole nativity scene. Um, he pursued the woman, but, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came up to help the woman, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed the river, and the dragon had poured from his mouth. So here, with the child being born, which would have been the nativity, the woman, uh, as I've looked at this before, we've said is Israel, the nation that God set aside. So it's not referring to the woman, Mary, that gave birth, but the nation and so in this text, because Satan had been thrown down, it's clear that, that what this is talking about is when Satan fell, when that happened in the creation story. If you remember from back when we talked about angels and demons, we said that it would be after, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, and then before uh, Adam and Eve, because the, the, the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. So we know at some time in that period, that occurred. And so since this is giving such a broad view of human history because the serpent falls and then he, he, his wrath is unleashed on the earth and then he pursues the woman who gave birth to the child, um, we can see that that's covering, each section of that is covering in some cases three or four years, in some cases thousands of years. And so trying the, the amillennials tries to take the same way that we look at Revelation 13 and apply it to Revelation 20 and say a thousand years isn't a thousand years. That the enemy was defeated at the cross. And so the enemy being chained occurred at the cross. And just like we talked about that view of, the, of two men are walking in a field and one is taken and one stayed, that you can look at that as the human experience that... We go through life and somebody that we love dies. I'm left here without the person that I'm walking with. 
just as you could interpret it that way, they, they take this and, and say that. I, I, don't, I think that God is pretty smart, and if he says a thousand years, that means a thousand years. I think that if we look at any, if we're trying to do hermeneutics, which is just the how to study the Bible on any text, we, make, we start out from the assumption that God's not trying to confuse us. That God's not in heaven going, okay, I'm going to throw them, a, they'll never figure this one out, right? That being said, remember what we said when we first started this, that apocalyptic literature is something we don't have. And so it's really hard for us in our Western culture to look at it because of the, the similes. But I think in this case, we are talking about, we know that it's the enemy, and we also know, and I think where the amillennialists and I would diverge, is we have Revelation 12 that tells that part of the story. Why would we retell it if that's already been dealt with? I think this is dealing with future events because everything from 20 forward is dealing with prophecy, with future events. The new heaven and the earth coming down, the, the judgment before the great, right, great white throne, all of those things are future events. So to me, the argument that this is a arcing look at human history doesn't seem to fit with a natural reading of the text. And then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their head or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, the amillennialist would say this first resurrection can't be all believers. It's only those believers who were martyred who it says were resurrected. How do we align that then with 1 Corinthians 15, which says, and the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain, they're believers who are here who haven't been martyred, will join them in the air and to forever be with them. So let me read through my notes so that we can, we can see all of the positions. So the postmillennialists think that this represents the current age. This time when Satan is bound... Uh, and, and, and all that is, is representing now. And that, that's um, hard for us sometimes to wrap our brain around. Now, the Amillennials would think that they came to life, and the first resurrection means that the souls of martyrs entered into the presence of God immediately after they died. And so the, an Amillennialist would read this text and say that the first resurrection is, is that when someone dies in Christ, they aren't dead dead. If you've ever been to a Christian funeral, that preacher will say something along the lines of, they ain't there. That's not them. But they are alive. They are conscious. They know what's going on. We looked at Matthew 24 where it says, and Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. He was conscious. So the amillennialists and the postmillennialists believe that this talk of the first resurrection 
isn't talking about something that happens before the millennium, but that that happens during the church age to every believer when they die. That when a believer dies, you don't sleep. That you are immediately ushered into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with God. That the dead go to a place of torment. Hades, and we talked about how Hades is often used in the Old Testament to refer to just death. But that, remember when uh, we're going to read in a little bit, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. And so an amillennialist or postmillennialist would read this text and say, every believer, when they die, experience the first resurrection. That they die, and then they're in God's presence. Now, again, uh, as a literalist, I, I don't see that position. I, that does not sway me. Because there seems to be a timeline that's being laid out here. The writer, John, remember, is being given a vision and trying to record that vision to the best of his ability. And if he was just referring to post-death resurrection of believers... Why would he make this in a sequential order? The serpent is bound. The resurrection occurs. There seems to be a timeline that the author wants us to hold to. And there's no reason for him to do that if that's not important. And the fact that it's only in this text referring to those who are martyred does not compel me that the rest of the Bible's testimony about believers being resurrected from the dead, it isn't referring to them as well. I think that John, okay, let's put the book of the Revelation in its context. And one of the reasons why it's hard for us to understand the book of the Revelation, okay, here, the book says, happy is everybody who reads this book, right? It says that at the end of the book. Blessed is everyone that reads this book. And a lot of people have tried to apply that to the whole Bible, and that's absolutely true, that we're all happy when we read the Bible, but that is John writing about the book that he just wrote. So why does it make me happy to read these sometimes horrific stories? The wine press of the wrath of God is pressed out. Do you get that imagery of grapes being in a huge vat and someone stomping those grapes and the wine or the grape juice running out of that wine press. And he is saying that humanity is in the wine press, and the wine press of the wrath of God is being poured out. How is that supposed to make that imagery of blood and gore supposed to make me happy? Or the locusts and the, the seals being broken and humanity being destroyed. How does that make me happy? Now, this is how. The original audience to this book, at that point in history, if you refused to make your yearly offering to Caesar, you would be marked. That person is an unpatriotic. He is an atheist, is what early Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. They had the gall to suggest that there was only one God and there was only one way to him. They would be said that they're unpatriotic, they're uncivil, they're not participating in 
what's going on. It would be like if there was a 4th of July party and you said, no, I'm not going to celebrate that. That's idolatry. I'm not going to be involved with that. Because that, that offering to Caesar every year wasn't about Caesar worship as much as it was about everyone enjoying the fruits of the empire of Rome. And so the Christians refusing that on the basis of idolatry was them saying to the culture at large, I'm not going to participate. And so once you were marked, what would happen is, is that your children would be taken away from you and given to good families. You would lose all of your property. It would just be confiscated. Your names that would, were etched, just like every community has families that are super a part of that community. I've always joked with Ben Huff because he's a Huff, but he's a barber, and so the two royal families of Glencoe have come together, and so Ben is the crown prince of Glencoe. And so there's all, those family names were literally written on the outside of the walls of the major temple in that city. When we lived in Ankara, we would go, and the, the Caesar's temple is there, and on the outside wall of that temple are all of these family names. Your name would be stricken off that wall. Your wife might be raped to death. You would be carried to prison to force labor and then executed. While you were at prison, you didn't, when you went to jail, the state didn't provide your food. Somebody had to bring you food. Which is why in the New Testament, Jesus talks so much about visiting those in prison. Because the reason most of them were in prison wasn't from breaking some civil crime or some civil law. They were in prison because they had claimed Christ. And so if you went to jail to take them food because you were a believer and went to church with them, there's a strong likelihood you'd get to stay. So these people, Paul says, or Jesus said, they gladly accepted the loss of all their goods. That means the state came in and took everything they owned and left them on the corner destitute. So if I'm a believer in that world, and I've lost family members to that sword, and I can't get a job, because once I'm, my name's stricken from the wall of the temple, nobody's going to hire me. And so I'm reduced to begging. So my dignity has been taken. My children have been taken. My wife has been taken. And there is no justice in the world, is what that believer would feel. And what the book of the Revelation shows us is at the end of the story, the scales will be balanced. That God is just. And so if I'm that guy sitting there naked and hungry because of my faith, and I read that God's wrath is going to fall on the people who are wicked and doing these things to me, that will bring me joy. I don't see it now, God, but I trust that you're going to work it out. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so those people who hurt me, those people who despitefully use me, I'm commanded to turn to them and pray for them and to bless them. That same church that underwent that kind of persecution, what was written about them by a lost man was, they take care of their own and then they take care of ours. The first hospitals in the world were ran by Christians who were taking care of people because up to that point, if you got sick, you were thrown out on the street because you were of no value to society. 
Christians were the first to elevate the position of a female. Christians were the first to recognize the Imago Dea that said, you know what, if a person has a mental incapacity, if a person has a physical disability, we can't just kill them. And so Christians would take care of those people. And they obeyed what Jesus told them to do, and they were punished for it. And so as we read this, and we keep in mind, just like we do when we're reading Philippians, just like we do when we're reading Hebrews, just like we do when we're reading Matthew, we have to know who the original audience is so that we know what's being said, and we have to know who the author, what he is trying to convey. And in this case, we know that he's trying to convey the vision that he saw and write it down to the best of his ability, and we know that his audience is the persecuted church. We know who got the letter. We have the seven addresses in the beginning of the letter. And so, if you're a Christian, and you've seen godly, Christ-loving people mowed down by their neighbor, I mean, think of the right now how this church is hurting over the loss of two beloved members. How much would that be magnified if the local police had been the ones who'd killed them? And we still had to be around the people who had celebrated them dying. And God had commanded me to pray for them and bless them. The reason why the book of the Revelation is one that John can say will fill you with joy is it shows that God will do what he said he will do and justice will happen. Now, that doesn't mean our vengeance. Remember, as we've said, hopefully I've said a lot, that the reason why we're commanded to forgive and the reason why we're commanded to love those who hurt us is because every human being's sin will ultimately be paid for in one of two ways. Either it was poured out on Christ on Calvary and the sin debt was canceled, or that person will spend an eternity suffering in hell for their sins. One of two ways. And if you are really someone who was destined to hell that got snatched out of the fire, you can't wish that on somebody. So, this also, this text, I think if we keep it in its sequential order, recognizes who the enemy really is, which is something that we as Christians, I can't even have to say that, that's something that Tom Harrison has a hard time remembering. That people are never the enemy. The enemy is identified. The dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, who in 12 we read, that great deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. That's the enemy. That's the one when you're laying in bed at night and can't go to sleep because you're beating yourself up over your past sins. That's the one who tries to tell you that you're a fake. That's the one that gets in your head and tells you that person shouldn't have treated you that way. You deserve better and, and wraps you around, around your own mind. That enemy also will be punished and will be chained and will be cast into a pit. <clears throat> so, 
I believe, again, that the writer here is laying out a timeline. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands of the sea, and they marched up over a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, I clearly, clearly see a timeline. Now, are parts of this allegorical? I think so. I think that the, the very mention of the beast and the false prophet that those are referencing humans who are doing stuff at some at one point in revelation we see that the enemy the serpent comes into that beast and actually possesses him just as he possessed judas and so but again i see a timeline let's go back to the way we were doing before here so in seven the amillennialist will see this uh, as the one described in chapter 16 and 19. Premillennial, which is the when all the nations are gathered together to destroy Israel and Jesus comes down and destroys them. The amillennialist look at this and say, this is the same battle. Uh, what we in, who've studied uh, um, prophecy would call the Battle of Armageddon. It's the same battle. Postmillennial, uh, postmillennialist see this as a separate, I'm sorry, premillennialists see this as a separate later battle. The gathered armies are called Gog and Magog, the titles of Israel's pagan oppressors who would be destroyed by fire from heaven and consumed as carrion. The ex saints are exposed as a camp and the inhabitants of God's beloved city are besieged by foes countless as the sand of the sea. Now, if... And again, this is in my mind where amillennialism falls apart in that where are these people who are willing to follow the servant from? Where did they come from? Who are they? Whereas in a postmillennial, I'm sorry, this is so hard to say over and over again and not get them jambled up in your mind. The premillennialist would say Jesus' second coming occurred so all of us came back with him, 1 Corinthians 15. And the one-third of the human population that was left was there. They reproduced for a thousand years. A thousand years that there's no war, there's no famine, there's no death. And so the human population's exploded. The number of people who were those of us with glorified bodies are going to be a pretty small number at this point. Because narrows the gate, Right? So that human population explodes, and then once the enemy is released, this once again shows the same thing that God shows us in Exodus, in Genesis, that in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, that human beings, even given the best of circumstances, will trend toward evil. 
Here these people have lived for a thousand years under the literal physical reign of Jesus. There's been no war. There's been no famine. All the swords have been beaten into plowshares. Everything is going beautifully. But the moment there's a little temptation, they go, we want to overthrow this. We want this to stop. And so God once again shows that when left to ourselves, just like we see in Genesis, in the garden, where everything was provided, everything was perfect, just as we see in Exodus, where God's children are put in a land on houses they did not build, on vineyards they did not tend, and given everything that they want. And then we see in 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, over and over and over again, this king did, was more wicked than his father. Over and over and over again, we see that downward spiral. And then I saw the dead, small, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now notice, though, and I think this is where we would all come together. The amillennialists, the premillennialists, and the postmillennialists would all agree that at this judgment seat, all of humanity will stand before God. Now, if all it said was that the books were open, then we'd be in trouble. Because my book didn't stack up. The book of all of my deeds that I have done is not going to get me into heaven. But praise God that it says, and the books were open, so they pull out the Thomas F.W. Harrison book. Thunk. Why should he make it into heaven? Well, from what I read here, he shouldn't. Ah, but there's this other book. The Lamb's Book of Life. Is his name found in there? Yes. His price was paid. Not on his own merit, but because of the work of the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy. On his merit, He's in. And so I thank God. Every time I read that, I get a little shiver down my back that it's not just the books because my book is not a good book to read. The video of my life is not something I want shown. And then death and hell are cast into the lake of fire and this is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, which tells us that nobody's book is good enough. That echoes Romans 1. There's none good, no, not one. If their name's not in the Lamb's book of life, when their book is read, and they give an account for every idle word, it's not going to turn out well. So, again, the three positions take this text and translate it different ways. I think of myself as a biblicist, 
and a literalist, which means that if the text says it, that's what's going to happen. And I see in the text, in this particular text especially, a narrative, a timeline, that if he was just trying to give an overarching view, there would be no need for that timeline. So that's what compels me to be a premillennialist. 